And so as Matt said, I did have some, a couple of messages that I was going to preach. I'm going to preach one of them on Wednesday night in Fredericksburg. And we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8 on Wednesday night. And I was going to do kind of a two-part uh, series starting tonight and then Wednesday on Nehemiah, on Ezra and, and Nehemiah. And I just felt from the Lord that I was supposed to preach this message. And so we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to see what the Lord would say to us out of his word. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for all the things that have already happened at, at this conference. And God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as missionaries and pastors, to gather each year to, to think about the things in which you've called us to. And Lord, to, to think specifically at this conference this year about reformation and revival. And God, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts and that we would be eager to hear and receive what you would speak to us. And I pray that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in thinking about reformation and revival, which is the, the theme... We had a great start last night with Pastor Jason talking about Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, and how they had right doctrine, sound doctrine, but their heart had strayed from their first love. And, and I think any, any, any foundation for reformation that would lead to revival must begin with our heart positioned properly before God, right? That we have to have our heart, our, our love for Christ to be premier and, and, and first place, and that yes, as we saw in God's word last night, we can, we can have sound doctrine, right doctrine. Our beliefs can be correct and we can stand against things that are false. But if our heart is not right before the Lord, if our heart is not sensitive before the Lord, then in the end, in the end, what have we accomplished? And so that was a great foundation. Well, tonight we're going to talk about sound doctrine and false doctrine, and we're going to talk about the reality of destructive heresy as uh, the Apostle Peter brings out here in Second Peter. And so when you're thinking about Reformation, and I was thinking about Reformation, I was thinking about leadership and how leaders are called. One of the primary objectives and purposes of being a leader, being a pastor, being a missionary, being a spiritual leader is that we would contend for the faith is that we would take seriously, as the church of Ephesus rightly did, contend against false doctrine. It's not easy to do that in our day. It's not easy to do that in a day whenever truth is, is not tolerated, when absolute truth is not embraced. We live in, in a culture that wants to throw off absolute truth. As leaders, it's not easy to do that, but it's one of our primary tasks, in particular as pastors, it's one of our primary tasks to contend for the faith. And I'll say this, our people need us to contend for the faith. The people that we're leading, whether it's our children that we're raising, our kids, our grandkids, whether it's the leaders that work under us as missionary leaders, whether it's as, as pastors, the sheep we're called to shepherd, we need to contend for the faith because there are many heresies that are out there. There are many false doctrines that are out there and they continue to, to multiply. Really, it's not anything new. There's nothing new under the sun, but the, these heresies, these false doctrines that are around 
since the beginning, they take different shapes as generations move on in our society and in our world. And so, so there's, there's ancient lies. They take different shapes. And we must be aware of those and be sensitive to, to those so we can contend for the faith. And Second Peter... Peter deals with false teaching and false teachers in one of his strongest rebukes. It's one of the strongest rebukes of false teachers in all of Scripture. And so this is what we're going to look at, 2 Peter chapter 2. And what we're going to see tonight is this. We're going to look at the the nature of false teaching. And then we're going to look at the, the nature of false teachers. And then we're going to look at our response to it. How do we respond to false teaching and false teachers, and what do we need to do to respond to that? So that, that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to look at. And so let's look. Here's the first thing that we're going to see. Here's the nature of false teaching. The, the nature of false teaching is this, is that false teaching is often subtle and covert. False teaching is often subtle and covert. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift, swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." So when most people think about false teaching or false teachers, if, if you were to close your eyes and you were, to, <laughs> you were to do this, let's all think of a false teacher, right? Let's close our eyes. Let's think. Who do you think of? Hopefully not Ben Bufkin. But when you close your eyes and you, and you think of a false teacher, I think you think of, and, and may, I'm not going to name any names, but you probably would like it if I did that. But if I close your eyes and we think of a false teacher, we think of the ones on TV, right? The ones selling the oil, you know, the oil, that if you, if you buy the oil, this is going to cure everything in your life. If, if, you, if you send the, you know, the, the, the right amount of seed money in, you think of those false teachers. You think of the false teachers that are over the top, that are, are waving their coat and knocking people on the ground. Those are the, the ones that you think about. But notice in Second Peter here, that's not, it's not the ones that are obvious that he's addressing. It's the ones that, what did the, what did the text say? That secretly bring in false teaching where? Among who? The people. Who are the people he's talking about? The body of Christ. So this is not, this is not uh, false teachers going out into the world. Peter's addressing false teachers coming into the church. Into the church. There's false teaching throughout the church, all around the world. False teaching creeps in, and this is what he's saying. False prophets and teachers arise from among the people within this church, and it means that at times, listen, it means at times that it can be difficult to recognize because it's secretive, it's subtle. False teaching is often subtle, it's often covert, it's under the surface. And why? Why is that? It's because it's coming from people who profess faith in Christ. It's coming from people that, that look the part and talk the part and, and say the right words and, and give the right lingo and look the, and look the right way and act the right way. And they're, but, but they're coming in secretly, used by the enemy to bring in false teaching. Jude, Jude says this, Jude, uh, Jude uh, verses 3 through 4 says, Beloved, which is us as believers, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you, about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, you know, just to pause here, you know, there is a faith 
There is a doctrine. There's doctrines of the faith. There is a once-for-all faith that we can all agree upon. What we were sparks flying at around coffee at Starbucks today were things that, that, that maybe would be considered secondary. But, but there, there is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that we must contend for. Right? Now listen, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. False teaching is often subtle and covert. It's subtle, it's secretive, it's destruct, but, but, but it is destructive. And Peter calls it destructive heresies. And here's what I want to do. Look, this is going to be challenging for us to think about, but I think it's good for us to think through some things. And like when we think about false teaching, what I think of, what I think of false teaching may be different than what you think of false teaching and vice versa. But, but, but I'm going to put some handles on some things and maybe some of the things I'm going to say are going to challenge you. I've got a list. Matt, Matt had 20. I've got uh, one, two, three, four, five. So I have five uh, points within my first point. But let's put some handles... <laughs> Let's put some, every good preacher has sub points. <laughs> you got sub points, uh, 1A and 1B, right? So I'm going to put some handles on some common, what I would say would be categories of false teaching. So follow along with me. Here, here's, and I'm going to call them all gospels, but I would consider these false gospels. Here would be the first one. I would call it the self-esteem gospel. This would, this would be categorized as this idea would be we become the center of the biblical story. We become the center of the biblical story. You, you, you can watch the YouTube sermons. You've, you've heard the preacher uh, tell you that you are David, fighting. You're David, and you're the hero. You're the one who kills the giant, and that's the, that's the purpose of the story of David and Goliath, uh, so that you can figure out who your giants are and where your giants are, and so, so that you can slay your giants. You've heard those sermons. That's what I would call the self-esteem gospel. You know, the, per- the point of the story of David and, and Goliath is God's glory. Right? But the self-esteem gospel, the, the, the point of that is that the point of Christianity is you in these kind of teachings. And the problem with your life is that you don't think high enough of yourself. You don't understand your potential, and the Bible is designed to help you reach your full potential. You don't have to think very long to, 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 when you hear messages like that. If, if you will have that lens to see it, this is those type of messages that, that you become the center of the Bible. The center of the Bible is not you. The center of the Bible is God, the self-esteem gospel. Here's another one, the, the prosperity gospel. Now, we all, we all know this one. This is nothing new. These, these are the ones I was talking about that's on TV, asking for your money in exchange for oil or whatever else they want to sell you. But at the nature of the prosperity gospel is this. Here's the idea. God becomes a means to our own end. So the prosperity gospel is not just about money. The prosperity gospel is the idea that God becomes a means to our own end. God is just useful to us. It's a utilitarian gospel. It's the idea that God's useful. I can use him for my own end, for my own benefit. And and the gospel, the Bible, is about that. To prosper me. The problem with the prosperity gospel and all of its different tentacles that come out from it into different messages is that there's no category for suffering in the prosperity gospel. We talked a little bit about that at coffee. There's no, there's no view of the sovereignty of God in the prosperity gospel. 
Right? We're the center of the universe in the prosperity gospel, and we have no category for suffering. What do you do with suffering? How do you handle suffering with those types of messages? And listen, these are the messages in particular, the prosperity gospel and this, this next one, the, the word of faith gospel. These messages in particular are the ones that are so attractive to the people that we're called to lead. And I haven't been in ministry uh, forever, as long as a lot of you guys have been, but the six years I've been senior pastor at Living Word Church, I've walked through with enough people through cancer. I've sat and watched enough people die and pray at their bedside who believed and who prayed and who quoted the scriptures and who confessed and did all the things that the prosperity gospel and the word of faith gospel will communicate And in the end, God chose to say no to healing here. He chose to say yes to healing there, right? But in these messages that our people will listen to from people that are on YouTube, that are on social media, they hear these messages, and we have to help them. We have to help them understand. We have to help them reject the lies. You know, the Bible is a message of suffering. If you want to really talk about singular messages... The singular message of the the Bible is a suffering servant, a suffering savior. They're suffering from the beginning to the end of the Bible. It's it's actually one of the threads that you see throughout all of Scripture. But the prosperity gospel from the pit of hell comes in and gives no category, no place for suffering, for cancer, for disease. And we reduce it all down to if I can just... And this is, I'll, I'll, I'll move over to the word of faith gospel. Faith, listen, here's, it, this is really a nuance of the, of the prosperity gospel, but here's the idea of the, of the word of faith gospel. Faith becomes a system to work. Prosperity gospel is, is that the, the, you know, God wants us to prosper in every area of our life and there's no category for suffering, how to deal with it. Well, in the word of faith movement, the, the message comes in, well, here's, here's the system to work. Faith becomes a system to work. These false teachings tell people that the answer to every problem they face can be solved by activating their faith, by having the right kind of faith, the right level of faith, having enough faith. Here's how I'll describe it in another way. It's kind of what I would call a carrot-dangling theology. So imagine if this was the God of the Bible that we served. The God of the Bible is holding the carrot of healing above our heads, the carrot of blessings above our heads, the carrot of the salvation of our children above our head, the carrot of all the things that we wish and desire, and he's waiting and he's watching and he's looking at us. He said, okay, I'm, I'm waiting for that level of faith. I'm waiting for that moment when they get to that height and to that level, when they've confessed it enough, when they've quoted it enough, when they've claimed it enough, when they've pushed the right buttons, pulled the right levers, and then I'm going to give it to them. Think about it. Faith becomes a system to work. Actually, what happens is, in, those, in this type of system, we don't really put faith in Christ. We put faith in our faith. We put faith in our faith. Faith in our faith. Just like the prosperity gospel, faith in our faith. You guys track it with me? Here's another gospel. False gospel. I'd call it the works righteousness gospel. This is the gospel that says that justification by grace through faith is replaced by man-centered self-effort. 
the works righteousness gospel. This has been around since Gnosticism in, in the beginning of the church. This is, there's nothing new to the works righteousness gospel. This has been around forever. This has been around since the garden. Uh, what did Adam and Eve do? Whenever they, when, when God came calling to Adam because he was accountable and responsible to lead his wife, what did, he, what, what, what did they do? Well, they put the fruit of the ground, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of works. They tried to cover their sin and their shame. And what did God do? God, God clothed them with skins of animals to represent the sacrifice of sin that was going to come. So works righteousness has always been around since the first two human beings. But these teachings come in many different packages but every one of them focuses not on the finished work of redemption, but a man's self-effort to atone for sin. Galatians 2 says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one is justified. Galatians 3, oh foolish. Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There's a, there's a movement out there. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Anybody heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement? It's kind of this idea that, that, that it's really, it's, it's, it's the book of Acts. It's the Jerusalem Council redone. That, 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 that there's the idea in, in evangelical Christianity that we have to adopt some of the, some of the, some of the, the dietary laws or we have, to, we have to maintain the feast days. And I don't think there's anything wrong with observing the feast days through a gospel lens and to look through the lens of the gospel into some of those feast days and to, to see the picture of Christ. But there are those who are, who are saying that we have to adopt the dietary laws. We have to go back to Judaism and try to bring it together with Christianity. And Paul would give a blistering rebuke. Oh, foolish believer, who has bewitched you? There is, there is no justification through returning to Judaism. So that, that's, the, that's the works righteousness gospel. Let, let me hurry on here. Here's, here's another one. I call it the hyper-grace gospel. The hyper-grace gospel. Here's what this teaches. The grace of God is used as a cover for sin. These false teachings come packaged on the opposite spectrum of works righteousness. These messages tell believers that because of the lavish nature of grace, believers don't even have to worry about sin. Because our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, then we don't have to even worry. We don't have to even confess sin. There's a preacher out there, many of you may really like him, but his name is Joseph Prince. This is one of his big messages that he will tell you. He will tell you, you don't need to be sin conscious, and you don't need to really confess your sins. It's a hyper-grace message. What did, the, what did the, the Apostle Paul say? How can we continue in sin? Right? God forbid. How can you have died to sin? Continue any longer in it. Paul in Galatians 1 says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly, listen, I am astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not, not that there is another one, Paul says here, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. These are all distortions of the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Why does, why does false teaching matter? Why does it matter that we stand against false teaching? Why does sound doctrine matter? Because when we embrace false teaching, when we teach things that are false, when we don't stand against things that are false, it's because it blasphemes. What's so bad about it is it blasphemes God. Because God has revealed himself clearly in Scripture, his character, his nature, his message, his gospel, his words. And when people, when people lie about God, it's blaspheming to him. I mean, think about, think about how it would feel to you, all of you who are married here tonight. Husbands, think of how it would feel to you if somebody said something that was false about your wife. What, what would you do? Would we have to bail you out of jail? <laughs> right? We'd want to rise with a jealous anger, a holy, righteous, jealous anger, and defend the character of our wife. Because it matters. No one's going to speak bad about my wife and lie about her. My wife is an angel, and she's watching right here. I think she is, honey. If somebody ever talked about you, they'd be, they'd, they'd be in for it. I may only be 145 pounds soaking wet, but <laughs> how much more does it matter when people speak falsely about God? And they embrace things that are not true of his character, of his nature, of what he's revealed in Scripture. So all of these false systems of belief, they're subtle, they're covert, they, and they have one thing in common. Here's the one thing that's in common to these teachings. Man is the center of the theology. It's, it's a, the, all of these that we went through, man is the center of theology. Listen to, this, listen to this quote. One commentary puts it like this. False teachers arise when the church begins to embrace the worldly culture around it. God-centered worship and preaching is replaced by man-centered antics and entertainment. A biblical emphasis on sin, repentance, and holiness is replaced by an emphasis on self-esteem and felt needs. And people look for teachers who proclaim only pleasant, positive ideas in accordance to their own desires. And these teachers will turn the minds of the people from the truth, leaving them vulnerable to Satan's deceptive influence. Man-centered messages. So I'm here tonight to tell you the hero of the Bible is God. The center of the story is Jesus. Faith is a gift from God and not a gimmick to be used for our own lustful desires. The gospel message is not about me, but it is about God receiving the glory that he alone is worthy of. And listen, we are in need of a reformation today. And here's, here's, one, of the, here's one of the reasons I think it's so relevant today in 2024. is because our people that we're called to lead God's people that we're called to lead, those that are under our influence, our kids, those we work with in the mission field, the people we're called to shepherd at our churches, they have instant access to information in a way that was not available 100 years ago. Instantly they can have access to all of these things I mentioned and 100 times more. And so we are need, in need of another reformation today. And Christian preaching has been hijacked by people who have a low view of God and His Word. May we sing songs that are God-focused and not man-centered. May we preach and listen to sermons that reveal God as He has revealed Himself in the Bible. And, that, and, and, and may that revelation motivate true worship of Christ. Now notice what the text says next. 
Verse 2 of 2 Peter 2. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Blasphemed. So false teaching is evil and dangerous because it blasphemes God and it misrepresents what he's revealed to us in Scripture. False teaching is often subtle and covert. And so that's the first picture of the nature of false teaching. What's, what's, what's the second picture of the nature of false teaching? Well, secondly, false teaching promises what it cannot deliver. False teaching is subtle and covert. We have to be aware. But false teaching, secondly, it promises what it cannot deliver. Look back to the text. Here's, here's, a, here's a description of of these teachings, of these, mess, of these false teachers and their teachings, 2 Peter 2. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Speaking a loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves. So they speak loud. They're like waterless springs. They promise them freedom, but they don't, de- they don't deliver. Now notice, it says, it gives the, the descriptor of a waterless spring. What's a waterless spring? An oxymoron. A waterless spring. P- picture picture a, a, a Middle Eastern desert environment where this would have kind of been the idea. And you're in the desert, and you're traveling for hours at a time, and you are parched, and you're thirsty, and you come to a, a well of water, a spring, and there's supposed to be water, and it's not there. Curse that well, right? Or think about it like this. You're in an emergency situation, and you grab your cell phone, and you call 911. Hello, 911, what is your emergency? That's what they're supposed to say, but you call 911 and they say, sorry, we can't come to the phone right now. Leave a message after the beep. Right? They, they're supposed to deliver, but there's nothing there. This is the nature of false teaching. It has a great promise, but there's nothing there. They don't deliver on their promise. Speaking with loud boasts, they promise freedom. The, and, and the messages are everywhere. Promise something it can never Deliver. And Peter is saying here that the message of the false teachers, it has no substance, it has nothing to offer. It is a counterfeit. Jeremiah 2, the prophet says this, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. False teaching offers things it cannot deliver because false teaching has no foundation in the truth because false teaching is built upon lies, which is a foundation that is built upon Satan, who is the father of lies. Man-centered false teaching will always lead to empty lies in search of something more to fill the soul. Rather, Christ-centered biblical preaching continually points us away from ourselves into the only one worthy of our worship and our affection. And listen, in our world today, we don't have time to play church anymore. There's no time. I love what Jason King said this morning in his session about, about, about a church of 4,000 or a church of however many thousand, whatever the church may be. But the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. What, are, what, are what kind of impact are we making in our world today? We don't have time to play church. We don't have time to tolerate destructive heresies that blaspheme God's name and the character of the gospel and turn the gospel on its head. There's not a time for self-focused, self-help, man-centered messages. Why? Because the issues of our world are too serious. Listen, here's what I believe about our culture. Here's what I believe about our culture. In particular, the LGBTQ 
movement in particular, the trans movement. Here's what I believe about it. They're going to end up at the bottom. They're going to end up at the place where they realize that the foundation they've been building their, their lives on, living against nature, living in non-reality, it's going to eventually not, it, they're, they're going to see it's not going to work. It's going to lead there. You cannot live like that for so long until you get to the bottom and you realize, wait, this didn't work. I've been sold a bill of goods. And, and where are we going to be as the church, as leaders? What are we going to be sharing? Are we going to be just following the trends of the popular preachers that we follow on Instagram? Or are we going to be opening the word of God and preaching the truth? to where we can give answers to the people that are coming, not looking for pop psychology. They're actually looking for sound doctrine. They want to know it. The 20-somethings want to know the sound doctrine. The 30-somethings want to know the sound doctrine. But there's preachers out there who think that, that it's still entertainment that's going to sell it, but it's not. It will come to an end. Listen, when Christianity actually starts to cost you something, churches will empty They'll begin to empty. And the churches that are heralding the word of God, they're not embracing false messages. Those churches people will flock to. Because they're looking, people are going to begin to look. They're going to want the truth. This is who we need to be. We don't have time to play church. It's time for believers and preachers to speak the truth of God's word with clarity and boldness. I was in my neighborhood the other day. And I, I, just, I just mentioned something in a sermon the week before. And I just said something about marriage and sexuality. And from my perspective, it was basic. I was saying what the Bible said. It wasn't the point of the whole message. It was in passing. And one of my neighbors who heard it, who doesn't go to the church but heard it, stopped me as I was going to get my mail and said, I want to thank you for saying what you said. I said, what did I say? <laughs> and she said what I said. I said, oh, oh, okay, yeah, sure. It's awesome. That's what God's word says. So I just want to thank you. And, it, and I, did, I didn't, we don't, have to, we don't have to preach against heresy every Sunday. We don't have to preach against the trans movement every Sunday. We don't have to preach against, but, but, but we have to be clear. We have to teach the word of God. And when it's time and when it's the right moment and whenever the text is Bringing it out, we need to be bold and be clear. 2 Timothy 4 says, I charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. And notice, notice the standard that the Apostle Paul is charging Timothy with. Listen, listen to what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God. In view of God. In view of Christ who is the judge. Paul's telling Timothy, one day, son, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so in light of that, of God, of Christ, of the judgment, of the living and the dead, and according to his appearing in his kingdom, on that basis, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, Mansard and false teaching will always be like broken cisterns and waterless springs. They leave people unsaved, not delivered, still in bondage, and still searching for truth. So what have we seen of the nature of false teaching? It's often subtle and covert. 
False teaching promises what it cannot deliver. Now let's look at what Peter says about the false teachers. This is so strong, what Peter says about false teachers. If you think I'm being over the top, listen to this. False teachers are, here's, here's what Peter says, they're marked by self-promotion and greed. Look, look, look at the text, 2 Peter 2. But these, like irrational animals. Can you imagine if, if a pastor got up and called a false teacher an irrational animal today? They'd get canceled by evangelical Christianity in a heartbeat. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Do you remember that? What's Peter doing here? He's using the account of Balaam and the king of Moab. You remember the king of Moab thought that Israel's getting a little too large, a little too big, and I need the prophet Balaam to curse God's people. And Balaam went to God, and God said, no, you can't curse what I blessed. And so the king of Moab, Balak, said, I'm going to try one more time. And he went back to Balaam and said, hey, I got some money for you. How many of you know when God speaks the first time, he doesn't need to repeat himself? And Balaam went back to God. God didn't change his mind, but you notice the motivation of the prophet Balaam? It was money, money this time. Hey, God, God, it would be a good idea. Here's the motivation of false teachers. It's greed. Listen, false teachers are known by their fruit. So, so listen, Jesus said this in Matthew 7 about false teachers. He said, look, look at their life. Beware of false prophets. Matt, this is Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will rec- recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, notice the opposite. This is so powerful in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus says, look out for false teachers. Their life will show that they, that they, that, that they are false. But your godly leaders who speak to you God's word, look at the outcome of their life and imitate their life. Look at the outcome of their faith and imitate it. So that's the nature of false teachers and prophets. Given enough time, it will be revealed who they really are. Given enough time, false teachers will reveal who they really are. So, false teaching is what? It's subtle and it's covert. It's secretive. False teaching cannot deliver on its promises. In the end, it's shallow and it's empty. When it's man-centered, here's, here's the point about false teaching. If you come over with just, with just this one thing, if there's teaching that is consistently preached from the pulpit that is man-centered, it will, it will not deliver to the people of God what they need. The people of God need a high and an exalted view of God and his word. They don't need to see themselves when they come to church. They need to see Christ. They need to look away to Christ. 
Our people are under temptation day in and day out. Do you know how dogs are trained? They're trained through temptation. Our people, they are tempted every single day to not look away to Christ, but to look to the temptation. How are dogs trained? They're trained through temptation. I don't know if anybody's a dog trainer. You can correct me if I get this wrong. But, but, but to train a dog, you take some meat and you throw it and, and you let the dog go get the, the meat. And then and the next time you throw the meat out there, a nice red meat, but this time you have the dog on the leash and you restrain the dog and you, and you, and you yell a command and you say sit or, or listen or whatever you want to say to train the dog to your voice, to look to you. And you jerk on them and then you... And then you do that over and over again. You get them to train to look up to you before they go and get the meat. Look up to you. And this is what we must train our people to do. Because they are in the world. They aren't getting the temptations. And when they come to church, they need to be trained to look to Christ. Not to look here, but to look to Christ. To deal with the temptations of the world. Look away to Christ. So that's the nature of false teaching. The nature of false prophets and teachers. What are the implications? Well, there's one main implication. Here's the thing. You can write this down. We must be people of discernment. That's the implication. We must be people of discernment. We have to be discerning. We have to be able to discern and think clearly. Be be people that will look into things, not just listen and receive whatever is out there. 1 John tells us that in 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But do what? But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I, I, I did a series about a year or two ago, a couple years ago. It's called How Then Shall We Live? And I talked about the false messages in the culture. And we're about to finish the book of John here in the, the end of April. And I think I'm going to might do a series called Don't Believe Every Spirit. And we're going to talk about the ones that have come into the church. Don't believe every spirit. We need to be discerning. Walking in discernment is not easy. Listen, it takes work. It is much easier to just listen and receive everything that anyone who claims Christ says. But listen, here's the trouble. is truly walking in discernment will not make you popular with people. Why? Because you'll be demonstrating care about the truth, which means that you will care about distinctions. When I think about the, the group of men sitting around at Starbucks this afternoon, what was beautiful about it is that we all cared about distinctions. It wasn't just me and Matt. It was some other brothers who were sitting around. And what makes it beautiful is that we all care about distinctions. We need to care about distinctions. And when you care about distinctions with people who don't have a, toler- a, toler- a, to- a tolerance for the word of God, then it's gonna, you're not going to be popular. Why have we seen so much compromise of God's word in the church over the last few decades? I think it's because of a weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction. It's back to what Matt was talking about in his talk this morning. right? It's, it's an abandoning of what the church had done for centuries in the exposition of scripture to God's people. It's, it, it, is, it is Willow Creek. It is the, the, the purpose-driven church. It is all those models. And, and they figured out a way to build a church like a business to give people what they want to hear and to not give them what they need to hear. And so when that, that, that's, where, that's where all this comes into. That's the weakening of the church because it's a weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction. Listen, without doctrinal clarity, convictions are replaced with compromise. 
So what replaces doctrinal clarity and conviction? What replaces it is a desire not to offend and to accommodate worldly perspectives. The worldly idea that's crept into the church is this. If we want to win the world, we will have to tone down our biblical clarity. Drawing lines is not attractional. And it's, it's not attractional. It's not attractional. Drawing lines is not attractional. This is why whole denominations are ripped apart over compromise on issues like the LGBTQ agenda and the exclusivity of the gospel, the reality of sin and judgment and hell, the doctrine of the authority and the inspiration of scripture. Whole, de- whole denominations are ripped apart over these issues because doctrinal clarity is not tolerated. I love what Matt Bell said today in his message. It was, it's in my notes. This idea of what does this verse mean to you? Right? That's the idea. I had this written down. What does this verse mean to you? That's a completely wrong question. The right question is this. What does that verse mean if you never existed? That's the question to ask. But in a man-centered message where we can't bring clarity or a clear truth, it's all about what it means to the individual person. But what if you never existed? What would it mean? What if none of us were ever here? What would God's word mean? That's what we're after. We need to be people of discernment. Because without attention to detail, businesses fail, families fail, churches fail. We lose, the church loses its distinctive. Here's what happens. It loses its gospel impact on a society. A compromising here, this is such a strong statement, but listen, I don't know if it's going to be on the screen. Listen, a compromising church may still have influence in the culture But that influence is used by Satan to keep people in deception and unbelief. A compromising church, the churches that are compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ, they may still have influence within the culture, but that influence is being used by Satan to keep people in unbelief. False teaching is subtle. False teaching promises what it cannot deliver. False teachers are known by their fruit. Therefore, we desperately need to be people of discernment. So I want to conclude with this. Just concluding, biblical reformation will take hard work and commitment. Biblical reformation will take courage and speaking up instead of keeping quiet. I just want to, I just want to challenge you, too. We don't have to be mean about it. We don't, you know, we, we can be clear and smile. You know, I thought about this the other day, about Jesus. How nice was Jesus? Do you think we're, we're, we're nice? Well, we were not nice. Jesus was nice. I mean, he, he, he fed people, thousands of people, free food. He healed everywhere he went except in his hometown. He, he ate with all the sinners. Every, the world loved Jesus. They didn't kill him because he was nice. And compassionate. They killed him because of his words. I don't think Jesus, when he spoke his words, he was rude or mean. He just spoke clearly. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. The sword was a sword of of division between truth and error. So we can be compassionate in our truth, but we must be clear in the truth that we preach. We, We have to let, we can't offend, but the word will offend but it's going to take us speaking up. So here's the truth. Here's the truth. The people that the Lord has entrusted to our care are being inundated with error from every possible place. 
And here's a picture I had in my mind this evening as I was finalizing these notes. Here's a picture that I had. And those people, I thought about Living Word Church and the people that are there every Sunday. I thought about this. They need their shepherd to stand in the gap for them. And there's a picture in my head. To bridge the gap between the errors they listen to between Sundays. So I thought about Sunday to Sunday. Sunday to Sunday. And here I am in the middle at the pulpit. Sunday to Sunday. They hear the word and they spend the week being inundated with errors. And they need preachers to stand in the pulpit and to bridge the gap between Sunday and Sunday. And to help them navigate another Sunday to Sunday. We need to stand in the gap for the people we're called to lead, to bridge that gap, to be the place that they know they can come to decipher and to understand and to work through all the garbage that they're hearing. Sunday to Sunday, standing in the gap. So I want to end with this quote by David Mathis. He wrote, he wrote, wrote writes a blog. I think it's a good way to end, good way to challenge our thinking. I think it should be on the screen here. The the question is not whether you you ever hear the voice of false teachers. You do, probably every day. The question is whether you can discern which messages are false. If you watch any television, listen to any radio or podcast, keep up on the news, or interact at depth with just about anyone in modern society, you are being exposed to some form of false teaching. If you cannot identify any voices you hear as false, it's not because you aren't being exposed, but because you're falling for it in some way. And that's the point. We're leaders. We're spiritually mature. Our people are falling for it. And we need to stand up. We want a reformation in the church. You need to start speaking up. It's, it's going to be okay. The Lord, the Lord will stand with you. You need, to, you need to start. We need to start being clear. And trust God with it. Open the word of God. Preach the scriptures. Give people. Stand in the gap. The people you're called to lead. Whether it's your family or on the mission field or in your church. Stand in the gap for those you're called to lead. Won't you stand with me as we pray for courage? Father, I I thank you for your word here this evening. As we're thinking about Reformation, God, we started last night with an introspective look at our heart. And God, may we we be men and women of God who, who don't just love sound doctrine, but love the God of sound doctrine. We don't just love the word, but we love the God of the word. God, may we be people that don't lose our first love. And if we have, as we repented, Lord, may we repent. May we, may we remember, repent, and return to the things we did at first. And God, as we're thinking further about reformation and about what needs to take place, God, we are in a mess in, our, in the churches of the world today. So many false messages that are being sent out instantly through YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and websites and TV, so many different messages that are all over the place, instantly accessible to the people we're called to lead. God, I pray that you would help us as leaders to be courageous. Lord, if we want a reformation, God, it's going to take courage. Just like you think about, Lord, as we think about the reformation of 
of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the ones that you used to recover the gospel that had been lost by Rome. It took courage. Many of them lost their life for it. God, may we be willing to stand whenever no one else would stand. We stand true to your word. Give us courage and boldness to stand in the gap between Sundays for our people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.